FM. That is the goal. You want them to see this is a context I didn't know. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. You're listening to a show all about curiosity. Chances are you might be a little more curious than the average bear. What piques that curiosity? Researchers spend a lot of time looking at how the human brain responds to new information or the absence of information and what we, as the support systems for those brains, do next. Do we love a good story and then cozy up with a list of things we're just dying to hear more about? Do we obsess over things we don't understand, not resting until we know? Does a nice, juicy data set send us into happy paroxysms of statistical inquiry? I've been thinking a lot about the ways information comes at us and how or if curiosity ensues. And in an increasingly complex world, I wonder how curiosity might help us make sense of that complexity, embracing its nuance rather than fleeing from it, our metaphorical hands flapping about our heads as we run. Are there ways to convey complex information that more reliably trigger constructive curiosity that encourage us to sit a moment and consider surprising news or unforeseen implications. Data visualization is the graphical representation of information and data. It's an emerging language with which we're all becoming gradually increasingly fluent. Think of all the COVID maps and electoral charts we've been poring over the last few years. We've internalized this often very abstract way of processing information. We see those images and we understand things, or we think we do. What, I wonder, goes in to those images? Who is making the design, let alone the data, choices, how, what motivates and informs their processes? How do they leverage curiosity, their curiosity, my curiosity in this work? And of course, my perennial question, who can I find to talk to me about this? ElevateDataViz.com to the rescue. Elevate is a collaborative community of data visualization professionals, folks who spend their day doing data viz. They offer practical techniques, freelance and career advice, and group coaching. One of Elevate's founders is Allie Torben, a DC area-based information design consultant who also hosts the Data Viz Today podcast. Allie started out as a data analyst at the Pentagon and eventually moved to data visualization and design, where she now maintains a thriving practice. All those credentials aside, I think it was her quarantine-inspired data visualization wallpapers, an intersection of period designs across the decades and data depictions that truly slayed me. And I'm delighted to have her join me today. So welcome, Allie. Hi, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's great to have you. So it really is this intersection of cold, hard facts and creativity that makes all of this information design and data visualization so irresistible to me. And, And thank you for helping me to unpack why and, of course, how curiosity shows up. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited. This is my favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) So it feels like there's a lot more data viz these days. Yes? 
Yes, yes. I think it's having its moment, especially with, with COVID. You know, everybody had to learn how to read the, the line charts. So yeah, I think it's, right. it's definitely coming to be more uh, mainstream. Well, you know, you started as an analyst at the Pentagon, and I was I was watching Steve Kornacki crunching numbers at the Olympics, and I thought, you know, data nerds are kind of the new cool kids. Like it's, <laughs> I it's hope a so. Thing. <laughs> so, so give us a quick primer. You're an information design consultant, mm-hmm. so data visualization is a part of what you do, but, Mm -hmm. but on your website, you have a distinction between information design, data viz, infographics, illustrations, explainers, kind of give us a lay of the language, if you will. The more that I worked with my data viz clients, I realized that what I was good at and enjoyed doing was visual communication. So that can include data visualization. So just think about your typical line chart, something you would see on a, a dashboard, infographics, something that is weaving together maybe different charts or different like workflows or timelines to tell a story to illustrations. Like I've done editorial illustrations where I just finished a project where I was creating a book cover about science graphics. So it was science related but it was more design work. And then I also do explainers, which the main thing I'm working on now is making co- a comic book for to explain data literacy concepts. Ooh. It's very related to data and information, but it's for the general audience. And who doesn't like reading a comic book, right? Right. right <laughs> it's very, right. you know, kids can read it. And if you don't have a data background, you can read it. So... I think to answer your question, to get a lay of the land, you I kind of think about it as this spectrum to data viz that kind of helps you make decisions all the way to helping you understand something like an infographic or explainer to data art uh-huh. or just plain art, illustration, uh-huh. something that makes you feel something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's also, I have discovered, very powerful software out there. But it occurs to me that the visualizations are only as good as the data from which they derive. Mm-hmm. So so how do I, how do we, how do you know that the data are sound so that you're not creating cool representations that are misleading or, or, you know, not conveying the information you want. I think of, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. How do you, how do you bring that part of the discipline forward? And I'm thinking there's a curiosity practice to be Mm. had here. Mm. Yeah, it, it is hard. When you start with a data set, it's very important that you explore it first. Like when I bring in a spreadsheet, I'm looking at the column names and I'm sorting them. I'm seeing what kind of values are in there. I'm seeing what information is, is listed, is not listed because data it's somebody collected it, right? Someone made decisions on what was included, what wasn't, who was included, who wasn't included. Like there are some serious implications even from way before you even get the data set. Someone made a lot of decisions that you don't know about. So it is important to see kind of the lay of the land at first, maybe get an idea of the distribution of the data. 
And if there's some sort of methodology about how it was collected, definitely read that. And then, like you said, when you bring it into a tool, it's really easy to start (laughs) charting. And before you know it, like you're adding trend lines and you're like, wait a second, can I really say that these two things are related? Or So it is hard. Having a grasp on statistical concepts is very important when you're creating charts, like what's the difference between an average and a median, you know, basic things like that. Um, You can't take an average of disparate percentages, right? Like you have to go back and do the percentage over again with everything. You can't, can't do that. So knowing those things can really help you sidestep those landmines before you are uh, visualizing. And then also when you're choosing your encoding method, which is, you know, you're taking the whole point of data visualization is you're taking data and you're encoding it into some sort of shape. Mm-hmm. When you're choosing your encoding method, bar chart, line chart, you have to make sure that it makes sense for your data. Like if you're mm-hmm. trying to show yeah, yeah. a proportion and you do a pie chart, but your numbers don't add up to 100, your percentages don't add up to 100, then your pie chart's not going to make sense. Make sure your data is representing what you think it's re- representing. And one thing that I always do is I, I test my visualization on someone else before I publish it or send it up to my client because I might have intended for the chart to show something and to highlight something, but everybody sees things differently. So it's really important to get a second pair of eyes on it. That's really interesting. And I was, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of this, your comic book on data literacy and that for the viewer to be able to interpret what's there and realize, oh, is this a good use of these tools? Is this telling me, conveying, you know, what what is intended? Mm-hmm. That strikes me as a good kind of curiosity practice from a from a viewer's perspective. Yes. It's like, what what's the message? What am I supposed to be taking away from this? Is mm-hmm. that what I'm taking away? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned when we were corresponding curiosity is definitely a huge part of your process and that you you design differently based on what you think your audience's curiosity will be. Tell me more mm. about that. Yes, yes. So when I first started doing data viz, it is, and you probably realize this too, when you were going to the data viz rabbit hole, uh-huh. that there's this wide variety of creative data viz, like, you know, data art, there's dashboards. So when you first start creating things, it's hard to decide kind of how creative can I be, you know? But I think that's the wrong question because how creative can I be when the visual is for your audience, right? The visual is not for me. So you have to, taking that shift in thinking made me realize, okay, how creative I can be, you know, like out there um, with the visualization really depends on my audience, who I'm talking to. Because depending on their level of interest in the subject and the amount of attention that they have at the time or their knowledge of the subject, it really needs to guide what I do with my visualization. So studying this a lot, uh, I created this framework, like a mental model that helps guide my decision-making when I'm making a visual. So if you imagine um, like a Y-axis and an X-axis, on the X-axis, the horizontal axis, you have how interested someone is in your topic. 
So you got like interested and disinterested, right? Uh And then on the y-axis, you have how focused or distracted the person is. And then this forms these four quadrants of types of readers that can come into contact with your visualization at any time, right? And a lot of times, you know, you'll have readers that span different quadrants. I just love the fact that you are illustrating your point with a visual, <laughs> with a metaphor. I have to, right? <laughs> it's just perfect. But I do think, but I'm but I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, wow, this is like, this is like a curiosity graphic too, hmm. as well. That's sort of, what level of attention can I invest here mm-hmm. and how invested am I? That's sort of a way of diagnosing curiosity. If I'm trying to create a visual for that's trying to get someone's attention that I'd like to lean into animation and uh, colors, anything that's going to catch someone's eye. So when I have a client, I am asking them going through this process, like where does our audience live in this quadrant? So we can talk through like what we should actually create. And it's okay to have multiple charts for multiple audiences. So some of my clients, we create the chart that's going in the report, and then we create something else, maybe a chart or a portion of the chart with some animation or an illustration that we can put on Twitter because we want to catch people's attention and catch their eye so they will go read the report. So it's okay to make multiple things. So that's interesting, actually, thinking about looking at data visualization and doing this back end kind of curiosity index of it. It's like, what was the designer anticipating the mm. audience's curiosity would be? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very it's a skill. It's a skill for sure. Yeah, I can see that. So so does data visualization help the viewer lean into curiosity, do you think? I think so, because... It's it a lot of times data visual, well, hopefully all the times, all the times, I don't know. I want to, I don't want to say all the times, most of the times it should be giving you some sort of context that you didn't have before. I like to think I was reading this book recently from data to stories. Someone from India wrote it and they sent it to me. And it was really interesting because they defined what an insight is in terms of data visualization, which I hadn't heard anybody define really before. And they define it as something that's either big, like it's a numerically significant number, like it's going to be 110 degrees today, or it's something that's useful, like it's something that's going to influence my decision making throughout the day, like it's going to be 110 degrees at noon today. (laughs) Okay, so now I know that. And then, or it's something that's surprising. So like, is this something that I didn't know before? So it's going to be 110 degrees at noon today. So you can fry an egg on the sidewalk. (laughs) That's something I didn't know. (laughs) So when you're trying to decide if something is an insight or decide if it's interesting for a viewer, you can think about, is it big? Is it useful? Is it surprising? And a lot of times to kind of bring those one of those three one or all of those three things out adding context is really important so if you say this is the hottest year on record make a chart showing the temperature every day since the 1800s or whatever the the record is right <laughs> like right. whenever they started collecting that data so you can see it low and then it high you know so putting some sort of context so you back to your question about whether a chart 
pique someone's curiosity. I think that that is the goal. You want them to see like, this is a context I didn't know. I have, I can make a decision now or something. Well, and you know, one of the things I was thinking a lot about in this was importance of context, but also the importance of sort of the complexity in which these data sit. That often we think about, oh, you know, simplify this, right? Simplify it for me. But but that may not be the best service to the viewer, right? Mm-hmm. By simplifying it, by making the complexity accessible. I mean, I don't know, is this is this resonating for you that the part of the challenge is not to bury the complexity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You I do think you're right, and a lot of people think, oh, well, we need to dumb it down or something. And I think that you don't need to think of that as the goal, but you do need to help give your reader enough context and space to understand things. So a lot of times when I have something that's really complex, like, okay, let's break this up into three charts because this one with all these annotations and these six lines and whatever, it's too much. It's, it's complex and it's everything that the reader needs to know, but we need to feed it to them in a way that it's like, okay, I get this point. Okay. I get this point, And then I get this point. Um, because otherwise if you make your reader work too hard, you might end up losing them or sometimes breaking it up is is the best thing to do. And I don't see it as necessarily as dumbing it down. I think that's what you meant by like oversimplifying it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that data visualization has shaped us? Like, do we think differently or mm. do things differently now than we did when there was less of this around? I think that's a great question. I I do. I do think that. And I think that the shaping is that people are becoming more skeptical of charts, which I think Mm. is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Because before, charts were harder to make. And it's becoming easier with all these software tools that you were talking about. And so because it's easier to make, anybody can make them. Mm -hmm. And if you put a data set behind it, then it's People used to assume, okay, it's true. There's a chart. It must be true. But I think people are starting to see, hey, anybody can make a chart now. So let me step back for a second before I like have an emotional response to this chart. Let me step back for a second. Let me check the x-axis and the y-axis, make sure they're saying what I think they're supposed to be saying. Let me check what the data source is, maybe even click on the link for so I can go look at the data source. So I think the way that charts are shaping us in the current is it's making us more skeptical of charts, which is good. There's sort of a good data viz hygiene practice mm. there coming with a little skepticism yeah, at, or just as sort of, you know, not taking it at face value and maybe thinking a little bit more about it. It goes back to sort of where we started with this sort of media literacy kind of a question yeah. as we become, as we become more comfortable in a medium, more fluent in its language and its use we tools of necessity have to become mm-hmm. more careful about yeah. how we're consuming it. Very And I think a general rule of thumb that I follow too is if I have a strong emotional response to a chart, then I'm going to spend more time being skeptical of it because uh. it, it matters, right? Like if it's like a, a 
chart showing the hospital rates or something. And it's like really shocking to me. And I'm really concerned. And I'll be like, okay, wait a second. What's the scale on this Y axis? <laughs> How does that compare to like what's been happening lately? Did someone like cut the date frame off on the X axis to make it look like it really shot up? You know, something like that. If I have a strong emotional response, that means I need to spend more, more time with it because it means that it matters. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk for a moment about something I encountered as I was doing my research here about data humanism and using data to sort of uncover the human stories behind the numbers and make data something that we sort of slow down with and make it more personal, less intimidating, maybe? Mm -hmm. What has that been looking like in the field? Yeah, I think um, data humanism, I think Georgia Lupi is the one who... I think that's where I first came across it. Pioneered it, yeah. I don't know if she came up with that term, but she's definitely pushed it into like the general public. Mm -hmm. And her whole point is that we have to remember that data is about people. And when you are charting things, you're aggregating a lot of information. Like It's just like a height of a bar is 100,000 people dying. And right. how does that, how does that, is that conveying enough of a problem to you by seeing a long rectangular bar, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think her whole thing is let's change the way we visualize things a little bit so that people can really get a grasp that these are people and data is about people. So it's like she'll do things like, Maybe instead of a bar, you've packed in 100,000 points inside that that same length. So you can say like, oh, that's a lot. And then she also creates – she does a lot of things where she converts information like about the self into symbols. So like how many times she took a drink today is a, a red circle. How many times she texted a friend is like a yellow square. And then she can visualize her day like that. And then you can kind of see patterns and just getting you to be curious about how you interact with the world. So it's a very beautiful, beautiful movement. Well, it's interesting. I've I've been um, going through her book, Dear Data. Um, mm-hmm. and And the very first thing that I realized was these are hard to read, actually. Mm, yes. You yes. have to stop and spend time looking at this representation of data. And it was, for me, this interesting shift because I thought, well, so much of this is about making it easier for me to absorb this information. Mm. And she's sort of mm. purposely not making it easy to absorb the information, but she's making me sit with the information mm. and consider its implications. And I found that actually really interesting. Yeah, it's a great point, making you invest time in decoding it. And I think kind of tricking you with its beauty makes you do that. (laughs) So I kind of feel like in our little quadrant, you're in the uninterested and focused like you maybe you're 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 kind of you had the her welcoming gesture of the beauty of it kind of piqued your curiosity and you're like, I I want to get to know this. I want to see what this is all about. And you it draws you in and makes you uh makes you connect it, connect with it on a deeper level. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we've already touched on a couple of metaphors and analogies in this conversation, but before I let you go, are you game for my big jar of wannabe analogies? Yes, of course. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So literal jar, 
I have slips of paper and we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips of paper. All right. And like to curiosity. To curiosity. Right. Okay. So yours is subway. How is the subway? Mm. Like curiosity. Uh, mine is spatula. And then we have one for the audience. So do you want to go or you okay. want me to go first? I, I can go. Okay. Okay. Um, so when I am, I think about metaphors and a- analogies a lot. So what I like to do is I take the thing I'm talking about and I kind of like just think about um, what, like how it's defined and like try to think of words until I like it makes a visual in my head and then <laughs> see if I can connect it to this one. I think maybe you gave, I got an easy one because um, the first thing I thought was like, okay, how do you define curiosity? And I think it's like something that, um, like motivates you to find out more or like drives you to find out more and driving <laughs> like something that <laughs> forward motion, the driving. So like curiosity is like a subway because they both drive you forward. Very nice. Right. You know, the jar gives what the jar gives. I know. I, I must have gotten lucky today. <laughs> so mine is spatula. I would say that curiosity is like a spatula because we can use it to kind of get things unstuck when we're Mm. cooking them. We can flip things over and so that it's a tool that allows us to kind of take control a little bit and Mm. manipulate the information or the situation in front of us um, to to get something that's tasty. (laughs) Yes, I like that. (laughs) All right. And audience, yours is ice skating. How is curiosity like Mm. ice skating? Let me know. Mm. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Allie, this has been great. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the launch of Elevate. I hope you're getting lots of interest around that. We are. We're getting lots of members. And thank you so much, Lynn, for having me. This was an amazing discussion. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. Find us online at WERA.FM. You can find this and all my previous shows on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your ice skating analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Allie Torben. Links to her, ElevateDataViz.com, and other cool data visualization resources on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Charcoal Lines by Sketchbook via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Choose to be curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.